This podcast has been brought to you with the support of Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. With a Wise account, you can send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Whether you're traveling through Asia, freelancing in France, or buying that dream property in Oz, Wise is the easy way to connect all your finances internationally. You can even send money home to mum in minutes. Join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com. Kia ora. I'm Damien Venuto. It's August 2nd and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. We all like to think that as voters in a democracy, we all have equal say in influencing politicians and policy. But some of our wealthiest New Zealanders potentially have a bigger say than most. A new series by Business Desk, Cash for Candidates, has revealed that since 1996, $52 million has been donated to our political parties by major donors above the threshold for public declaration. Those major donations come from just 538 individuals, businesses and not-for-profit organisations. Who is donating to our political parties? Which parties benefit the most? And do those donations have any political benefit for those splashing the cash? For a hard look at the world of political donations, today on the front page, we're joined by Business Desk contributor and journalist Donna Chisholm. Donna, what does the law currently say about donations to political parties? How much does someone have to donate to get it declared? Well, it changed in December under the changes to the Electoral Amendment Bill. The disclosure of a party donation has now reduced from 15000 to 5000 and all donations over 30000 have to be disclosed within 10 days. And if it's $20,000, it has to be disclosed within 10 days only in an election year. There's a lot of rules around it. <laughs> When we look at that top line figure of $52 million for declarable donations, is that only scratching the surface of the biggest contributions? Are there potentially millions more given below that declarable threshold that is shifting at the moment? Oh, absolutely. You know, we, we don't hear about the small donations, the small anonymous donations that don't have to be disclosed. But one of the concerns for the researchers in this field is the opacity surrounding a lot of the big donations that might be carved up into smaller amounts. And we saw that in the court case that was taken a couple of years ago. So, you know, I think there is concern that there's a lot we don't know. Yeah, because it does create the possibility where a wealthy person could perhaps get their friends and family to donate smaller amounts that, again, again will amount to something that's far larger than what we realise. Oh, that's true. And the problem is, if it's a big sum, you have to go to quite a bit of trouble to do that, <laughs> which also is a red flag because it suggests that if you don't want transparency around what you're donating, why don't you want that? What's motivating the people who donate to political parties? Are they expecting to get anything in return or do they simply want to nudge the country in a certain direction? I think there is certainly a belief from the research that donors expect a quid pro quo in this. It's more of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge approach to it, though. They wouldn't come out and say, well, you know, I wanted this policy changed, therefore I gave $30,000. One of the quotes that was in the research that was done recently was, if I'm nice to them, they're nice to me. Mm -hmm. 
obviously people will donate to a party that they think is sympathetic to what they want, but what they are getting is access, and as we know, with access goes influence. You wrote about the Cabinet Club and the President's Club that National and Labour run respectively. While these aren't as active now as what they once were, is there an appeal for donors to simply be in the room and have the ear of those ministers? Oh, totally. <laughs> That's why they do it. As Max Rashbrook, one of the researchers that I spoke to for this research, said that he knows that donors not only get in front of these people at, at these events, but they get access into the office later. And he said, you know, he knows of many NGOs that can't get a foot in the door. These people get a foot in the door. So when we talk about equal footing, that's a really good example of having money essentially gives you access, whereas the NGOs won't have as much money, won't be donating as much, and therefore don't have the access. Absolutely. And that's what all the research and all of the recommendations are designed to take away the influence of big money. As one of the researchers I spoke to, Simon Chappell, said, there's a reason we have one person, one vote, and not one dollar, one vote. (laughs) It is essentially unfair if money buys you access and influence. So that is what the recommendations for change that are currently being looked at are saying, how do we reduce the impact of money and make it a more democratic process in that a lot more people can have a lot more say for a lot less money. The Cash for Candidates series on Business Desk has found that the gap between national and labour is growing, with national garnering $1.6 million this year, three times labour's 459000 How much do you think pro-business policies are influencing donations? Well, it's hard to say because, you know, that is what the party, certainly national, has stood for for a long time. You know, we don't know which is the chicken and which is the egg, but certainly it's a cycle there. (laughs) So, you know, I don't think we know how much policies in particular are being influenced. But what we do know is that people are giving to the party, which they think will favour business. I can't see your charts, but I can add 1.7 and 1.33 together and get $3 million for a National Act combo up against Labour at 460000 just, you know, under half a million. In your research for the Cash for Candidates series, you found that a little donation could go a long way under MMP. What did you mean by that? Before MMP, we had a different electoral structure and we had quite strong party activity within those seats because that was the way that you got into Parliament. You won an electorate seat. Now, in '96, when that changed, we had a small cabal of power deciding on list seats. The influence shifted from grassroots to centralisation. If you could influence a fewer number of people, you could bring about change, whereas before you had to influence a lot of grassroots people. And you might have electorate MPs that were exceedingly popular that could buck that trend, if you like, or bring those voices. But that's been reduced by MMP, which has changed the whole structure of power within the parties. Are there any recent examples that you can point to that illustrate that observation? Well, I suppose you could point to the kingmaker position that New Zealand First has found itself in, you know, certainly in those days, where you had Winston Peters, who was not only, you know, the leader of the party, but racing minister, for example, deputy PM. If you were, for example, in the racing industry, you could influence National Party position on racing by influencing New Zealand First, which was a much cheaper way to go about it. And, you know, as we saw the New Zealand First Foundation, that court case that was a couple of years ago, 
donors to the foundation were racing industry people. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with racing industry people supporting a party that they thought would be best for their industry. But that's an example of potentially a minor party having a lot more influence in that environment. The Front Page is the New Zealand Herald's daily news podcast. And to hear more about local and national politics in New Zealand, listen to new episodes of On the Tiles, the Herald's politics podcast, every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. What are some of the areas of concern that researchers told you when you were looking into this whole area? I think that the main things that they pointed out was that parties were failing to disclose potentially large sums of donations from industries in particular. And that's where we get into the lobbying side, which is a whole other ball game. But there were repeated instances of obscuring the source of donations through carving up donations using sham donors. And as they pointed out, the problems that we saw come to court cases were only revealed by whistleblowers. They weren't revealed by the system working to discover malfeasance within itself. So we're relying on the ethical boundaries of individuals rather than the system picking those up. They're also concerned about the appearance of party leaders and MPs appearing to solicit donations. You know, if you pay enough, you, you can get the PM or the leader of the opposition to have dinner at your house. So, yeah, I, I think that they said they didn't find what they called a smoking gun that we could find on any day of the week, probably in the UK or the US. They didn't find corruption in inverted commas, but they found enough of concern to suggest that we need to do something about it. Do the researchers believe that the donors are actually succeeding, I mean, if that's their intention, in influencing policy or shaping a party's positions? The short answer is I don't think they know that. Yeah, I think they did a lot of work to try and work out what that influence was. But it's pretty, you know, as Max Rashbrook said, it's notoriously difficult to prove that. And, you know, one of the things that I was asking them about was the quid pro quo for contracts, for example. If I give you a donation and I'm a business person, do I get a major contract? And they said, really, that was really too hard to pull out that information. So they didn't find a great scandal, but they certainly found enough of concern to worry them. Does this issue come down to muddying of the waters? Because the example of Stuart Nash is probably a decent one at this point, where he faced quite a lot of criticism for accepting money from the forestry industry and then being required to regulate the forestry industry. All my donations from those in the wood processing sector have all been declared, so it's not as if I'm hiding anything from the public or anyone at all. Does that muddying of the water kind of create some challenges for politicians in terms of doing their jobs properly? Oh, absolutely it does, and that was a good example. But Bryce Edwards pointed out in this piece that the industry influence is potentially a lot greater even without donations, <laughs> if you've got a minister who's got that portfolio, he is going to be under a barrage of pressure from the industries that he has to deal with. Now, if one or other of those people who, who are high profile in those industries are donors, it's a whole new level of muddy. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Cash for Candidates series found that the three biggest donors since 1996 were Colin Craig, Kim.com and Gareth Morgan all funding their own parties to get above that 5% threshold and then eventually failing. What's your take on that? 
I think that's quite good, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it shows you that no matter how much money you've got, you can't buy your way into Parliament. And the 5% threshold, I know that there has been debate about do we reduce it to the 3%, but that threshold is probably there for a reason to prevent just that sort of activity of money buying power. Yeah, because money gives you attention, money gives you exposure, and if that leads to you being voted in, is that necessarily a good thing? You know, you can look at those three and say that they did not lack for exposure and publicity. They had yards of it. If that had been enough to get them in, they would be in. Your story also lists a number of concerning events from recent years, ranging from the Jamie Lee Ross versus Simon Bridges saga and what that stirred up, to the NZ First Foundation that went to court. But there is a perception that when these cases emerge, they just disappear almost as quickly. Is that a fair generalisation or is there more to this issue? It's probably fair in that we've only had two court cases, one of which didn't actually succeed in getting convictions. Even by the nature of those cases being taken, and I know that there's only two, it does raise the profile of the issue. And it's not for lack of work going on in this field. You know, we had the Electoral Amendment Bill last year, which was the result of this. You know, this, it's, it's on the radar. I don't think that just because we haven't had a court case every year suggests that it's being ignored. I think there is attention being paid to it and how we can make it better. One of the recommendations has been to have things like tax deductibility of donations from smaller donors to have, um, you know, obviously reduce the cap on donations and things like democracy vouchers, a Canadian system where they regard it as being quite successful in spreading public input, if you like, and making a lot of smaller donations and having, and this is unpopular, but having state funding, a higher level of state funding of the political parties. Because then you could actually level the playing field and ensure that the parties have a fair opportunity to get their message out there. Yeah, that's what it's all about. And that's what all the rule changes have been all about, to reduce the influence of big money. Donna, when you look at the Independent Electoral Review and their recommendations to reform political donation rules, what do you think we need to do to reform the system and ensure that our donation system works better and is more fit for purpose in a modern democracy? Well, I think that the recommendations have won a lot of favour with the researchers that I spoke to. They're really saying it's about the democratising of the process to have only people on the electoral rolls being able to loan or donate to parties and candidates, for example. That's one of their key recommendations. That tends to reduce the influence of foreign donors, for example, as we've referred to capping the amount that can be donated, increased disclosure. But as we say, there's always ways around it. I spoke to one major donor. (laughs) I said, what would you do if the cap came down? And he said, well, you know, what a lot of people would do is probably make smaller amounts over more members of my family. So, you know, what the recommendations are includes, you know, capping the spending limit of all parties, tax credits for small donations, It is just about levelling the playing field. I suppose if you are adept at avoiding uh, paying the full amount of tax that you're meant to pay, you're going to be pretty good at avoiding um, the donation rules when it comes to this kind of thing. Totally. There's always a way around a rule. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us, Donna. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. 
The front page is produced by Sean D. Wilson with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow the front page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts and tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.